Everybody leaves ESPN, we call James Andrew Miller, who is the author of These Guys Have All the Fun, which has become the standard history of ESPN, and coming in August, another book, Powerhouse, The Untold Story of Hollywood's Creative Artists Agency. Jim, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So Dan Lebitard goes on his ESPN radio show this week and says, when you leave, meaning leave ESPN, you're going to get lost. Is he right? Well, I think ESPN has been around long enough and is big enough for us to say the most obvious thing at the beginning, which is there are no universal truths. There have been, you can make the case to convict or acquit on any issue, uh, you know, about ESPN. So it's it's kind of a little dangerous to, to, to make global comments like that. I think that's been true for some people. I think other people have clearly survived. Is, is he uh, parroting what an ESPN executive would say and has said about talent for the last couple of decades? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's that's one of their favorite refrains. And I think that they I think that to some degree they have to believe that because that's one of the ways in which they convince people to stay who are thinking about leaving and who have options other, you know, elsewhere. I, I think they have a tendency to give some examples of people that, you know, may have left and thought that that it was going to be better outside of uh, Bristol and maybe it didn't work out that way for them. And so, um, you know, they, they, can, they can do that. I, I think that what's more interesting to me is, you know, what kinds of people ESPN is deciding to really try and keep and what kinds of people they don't mind losing. And when money is part of the equation and then all of a sudden, you know, money doesn't matter. You know, it's, it was, it was, it's just been very interesting through the years to, uh, to chart both of those paths. What surprised you as an ESPNologist about what happened this week? Well, Look, I mean, the Tarico thing is interesting because he's been there for over two decades, and I think that inside ESPN for the last six months, people have been saying there's no way, you know, Mike Tarico leaves ESPN, and because they thought that his loyalty to the company and it was clear that the company wanted to keep him would prevail over any other possible outside offers. Uh, it's not that surprising, though. I mean, the truth is that one of the weird things that's happened just in, like, I don't know, 15 years, 10, 10 years, 15 years, is let's just take Monday Night Football for a moment, which is a big part of Mike's portfolio at ESPN. You know, it's gone from being the premier football event to now it's basically the fourth worst schedule. And so as a result, uh, you know, it's easy for NBC to say, Look, you know, we have Thursday night football, we have Sunday night football, Al Michaels will be, you know, leaving one day, who knows, but, uh, you know, we have football too. Uh, There's no, I mean, he's going to uh, be letting go of the NBA, but in return he's going to be getting the Olympics and a lot of golf and there's other things. So I think it's really interesting to see that in the current landscape now, ESPN has a big moat in terms of 
some of these long-term deals with conferences and particularly with college football and other things. But other places have enough interesting elements. You know, they have inventory and they have cultures that can be attractive to people. So it's never it's never a guarantee. Uh, I think that you know the the landscape has become much more competitive. As for Skip, um, I mean, look, they they really Skip Bayless got a nice offer from ESPN. Um, people were kind of blown away by it because I do believe I was right when I tweeted it was north of four million dollars, but. You know, Fox is going to pay him a lot more than that. He's going to be in the fives. He's going to uh, – he got a $4 million signing bonus I think he's going to get. And uh, so it's a lot more money, and I think he feels like it's a different kind of culture over there that he, he, can, uh, that he can feel more comfortable with. What would he – So what, what in was some he ways, un- it's not that surprising. What part of the uh, Bristol culture was he uncomfortable with, do you think? Well, you know, look, I mean, there's certain baggage that you have um, at ESPN, and part of it is ESPN's fault and part of it isn't. You know, it's just because it's such a, you know, the good news is that it's a big fishbowl. The bad news is it's a big fishbowl. So I think that sometimes uh, Skip throughout his career, particularly in the last several years, uh, was engulfed by controversies or whether or not, management was going to support him or whether he was going to get suspended or whether he had gone too far or whatever that it's just part of the ESPN equation. And those things don't typically happen a lot at other places. And I think there's also just this notion of who you're working with and who you're reporting to. Um, you know, Jamie Harwitz at Fox has, uh, has a lot of fans uh, in terms of talent. And um, I think that that's been a rather compelling thing for Fox when they're trying to uh, get people over there. Uh, you know, I think that people people like working with him. Um, I'm sure there are people that don't, but you know, the people that have gone over there, um, you know, it's Colin Coward and Jason Whitlock and Skip. I mean, obviously they have a really good feeling about working for Jamie, and so that becomes you know, yet another selling point. Did you, as you took the temperature of Bristol on-air people over the years, what did they think of Skip and Skip's work, do you think? Look, I mean, part of it is you can, there are people at ESPN who sit around and say, oh my gosh, look at what Skip and Stephen A are doing to our brand. And then there are other people who sit around thinking, wait a second, there's 8,760 hours to fill in a given year. And, you know, there's all sorts of different flavors that we have to offer. And if we're trying to attract hungover college males in the morning, first take is a pretty good delivery system. I mean, it's, it's tonnage. You know, you get a lot of hours every day of the Monday through Friday, and it's a great demo for advertisers, and it makes money. So, you know, some people were realistic about the, you know, the actual business 
behind something like first take. I mean, forget about whether or not they say crazy things. I mean, that's at this point, that's part of their value proposition to the audience, right? Which is like, we're going to say things that you're not going to hear anyplace else. And, and the other problem they have is with SportsCenter serving less and less of people's needs, so it isn't like required television, um, you know, how do you get people really engaged? How do, they, how do you make sure that they have a reason to tune you in day in, day out? And it's not to get the scores or the highlights that you can get on your phone. So First Take became a very, very distinctive way of, you know, keeping people you know, at the network. And it was appointment television for, you know, over 400,000, you know, I guess it was over about 400,000. And that's not a bad number for that time period in a period where an argument becomes more valuable than a highlight in a weird way to ESPN. Right, because again, how are you going to differentiate yourself from anybody else? Everybody else has the highlight. So, you know, um, how how are you going to make it different? And you're going to make it different because Skip at some point is going to say something about Tim Tebow, Tom Brady, and countless others that is just going to be, you know, either off the wall crazy or you're going to want to rush out and tell all your friends or tweet or something. And and that's the kind of engagement. Um, You know, early on in Howard Stern's career, they had figured out that people who listened to him was was like 20 minutes or something. And people who hated him listened to him like for like 35. (laughs) And it was just one of those interesting dynamics. And I think that I've come across, you know, a lot of people at panels and symposiums and speech who just rail and rail and rail about Skip and Stephen A. And then I'll say to them after I answer their question, by the way, do you watch them? And they go, oh, yeah, I watch it every day. <laughs> you know, they're, just, they're just awful. They're just the worst. You know, I, but I never miss it. So, um, you know, whether it's slowing down to see a car accident or, you know, whatever it is, um, it, it's, it's, it's definitely worked for ESPN. So I'm not surprised they wanted to keep them. And, uh, you know, we shouldn't be shocked that he left. You know, the funny thing is I have a Sirius XM uh, in my car, and they have one of the channels as a simulcast of ESPN TV. So I listen to First Take basically as sports radio on a daily basis every morning. And the funny thing is everyone talked about it being so transgressive, right, and too hot for TV. But if you listen to it on sports radio, it just sounds like sports radio. If anything, it's probably more thoughtful, and the segments are slightly longer than the rest of what's on sports radio, including, by the way, ESPN sports radio, which I always thought was Right, exactly. Which I thought. I will say, though, that they have, those two kind of perfected this art of, I mean, it's almost Oscar-worthy, the the looks that they give each other and the pregnant pauses and the, the deep breaths and all these things that are just, I mean, they are kind of telegenic in the sense that you just think, oh, what's what's coming next? Or... Are they really that mad or, you know, I mean, it's not, uh, I mean, the thing about, let's say, Wilbon and Kornheiser is, you know, at the end of the day, they're probably going to continue to argue even after the show's over, but they have enormous respect for each other and they have a long history together. And there are moments when you think, wait, are these guys off the reservation or what the heck is going on? So it makes it even more engaging when you're watching it. Yeah. If I think of Skip on ESPN, I think of him nodding right lips closed nodding kind of thoughtfully while Stephen a you know <laughs> holds forth right how easy is it do you think or let's put it this way how easy is it for espn how easy do espn executives think it is to plug someone else in uh go two rounds with Stephen a every morning and still keep the same number of people 
uh, on the uh, glued to the screen? Well, I think the first hint is that they were willing to pay Skip over four million dollars. Uh, I don't think uh, I'm going to give them credit, and I think that at this point they're you know climbing Everest on a cold day in their shorts because it's not something that you can throw people into. Uh, it takes a particular skill set, not to mention it's a high wire act without a net because you have to be fearless. You, I mean, even if you think that every single word out of Skip Bayless's mouth sounds like it came from somebody with a double-digit IQ, you, you have to give him the respect of the fact that he could care less like what Twitter is going to say after he says something. Like, you have to be fearless to take some of the positions that he and Stephen A. take. And so that's the first kind of, you know, you have to have somebody who is reasonably informed to make these uh, unreasonable sometimes uh, characterizations or opinions. You need to have them to be fearless. You need them to be able to work with Stephen A. and, you know, that kind of choreography so it doesn't isn't just – you know, two guys really, really yelling at each other. And um, they have to have the ability, I mean, to have this like Pied Piper quality to them, which is that people really kind of want to hang out with them and listen to them. There have been, you know, I think it's easier said than done. And um, it, it'll be it'll be tricky. There are a bazillion ex-writers, right, or mostly ex-writers who come to ESPN to become pundits of some sort or another. And is that what, what you said? Is that what made Skip weirdly the most valuable and irreplaceable of them all, that he was just fearless, that he was happy to be on the high wire every morning and didn't worry uh, about what the blowback would be or what people thought of him? I, I think that's part of it. I really do because, I mean, look, there have been times in ESPN history where people have said provocative things and then just gotten, like, slammed. And you see that sometimes they kind of, like, retreat a little bit and you know all of a sudden a couple weeks later you look and they've been you know kind of speaking in the proverbial between the proverbial 40 yard lines right Mm -hmm. they haven't they haven't been swinging for the fences that much or whatever i mean skip like wakes up and you know has that stuff for breakfast he can't wait to say those things and uh so and he has enough knowledge where he can ground it in some sort of he'll like pick a metric or he'll pick some, you know, there, there's always a statistic to be found to support any kind of argument or he'll make some kind of like crazy prediction or something like that. So it's not just like kind of wild, wild ramblings. There's always like a kernel of something that you think, Oh, wait a second. Could this be, or hold on a second, even as crazy as that might sound. So there's a science to it that he has, uh, you know, perfected as well. Um, I think, you know, the, the, the biggest thing about Bayless and that show is that um, it's, it's harder to do than people think. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a diehard fan. I don't watch it all the time. But when, you know, whenever I look at it, either, even if they're doing it just to, just to make, you know, score points in terms of being outlandish and crazy, it's still hard to do. Let's talk about the other half of uh, the defections this week. Mike Tirico, who walks into ESPN straight out of Syracuse at a ridiculously young age in 1991. What is Tirico's ambition when he walks into the network back then? I think that it's twofold. One is 
he genuinely loves sports, and that matters. Um, you know, early on in people's careers, the, you know, there are sometimes people who, um, you know, wanted to be in news, and then all of a sudden they moved over to sports, or they want to be in the world of sports, but they don't love it enough to really, really engage in it and to be a student of it and to understand it and to do all the kind of work that you have to do, you know, in other areas like news or politics, in Wall Street and whatever. You have to do that with sports. You have to work hard. And I think that, so he came, I think he really loved sports. I think he also loved broadcasting. I mean, you know, uh, the late Stuart Scott, when I I interviewed him several times for the book, and, and he talked about from North Carolina, just just loving the idea of like being engaged in that role every single day, just could not get enough of it. And I think that, you know, Tariko was like that. Uh, I, I think that when you, you know, when you listen to him or you watch him, you know, you're clearly aware of the fact that this guy really loves what he does. So I think we were fairly safe in saying that no one watches an event to watch Mike Tariko specifically, which is not nor abnormal for announcers. So what is his value or was his value within ESPN? Uh, look, I mean, when you spend when you spend the, the money that ESPN spent on Monday Night Football, let's see, it was uh, $15.3 billion, right? So that's – and it's the NFL. It's their most important franchise. So just by definition, you want to make sure that you're putting that product in the hands of somebody who really can deliver and you don't have to worry about. Um, you know, it used to be like in the – in the NBA, the old days, David Stern would call up and say, wait, what, Brad Nessler or whoever he would be complaining about that week. You know, you, you want to make sure that uh, you have your best people or at least somebody you really, really trust uh, connected to that NFL shield. And I think that that was something that Bodenheimer and Skipper knew about Tariko. Um, I think that's without question. Does, does it move a rating point? I, I don't think so. I think that once we got past, you know, Howard Cosell and Dandy Don and that and Frank and all that incredible kind of magic that happened in the uh, in the booth in the early days, I think that um, you know the people are going to watch the game. Uh, and if they complain about somebody, then you know they'll. I mean, sometimes uh, they'll turn down the sound or something. I mean that. You know, I know that happened. Uh, some people threatened to do that when every year when Berman does his uh, his own NFL game. Um, although there are plenty of fans for Berman too. But my only point is, I, I think you're right. We're not. You know, you're not going to see any demonstrable change in the ratings just because Mike Tirico is not going to be in the booth. Yeah, and I, it's sort of like his value is that he's the guy, as you say, who the commissioner's never going to pick up the phone and complain about. He's the custodian, a good custodian of Monday Night Football or the Masters or whatever the property is for ESPN. Right, and with ESPN, I mean, they, Berman doesn't can't do the Masters, and uh, Mike loves golf, and he's got a great presentation for it. And, uh, you know, with the NBA, particularly with uh, Stewart, uh, sadly gone, so... You know, he definitely, he definitely fit in nicely there, and I think he, he I think he will be missed. Um, I think that they're, they were surprised and uh, upset about it. Yeah, it was funny, and it's funny too because I saw the phrase "face of the network" thrown around with uh, regard to Tariko this week, in the same way you might see it with Jim Nance at CBS, right, or Bob Costas at NBC. And I think 
you would have, it would have probably have been kind of an upset uh, if I had told you back in 1991 that Tariko would have been that guy. And how did we get there? How did we get to an ESPN that Mike Tariko was as big a personality uh, of and face of as anyone else uh, in Bristol? I think part of it is that in the 90s, you had the golden era of SportsCenter. So at 6.30, you had Bob Lee, Charlie Steiner, Robin Roberts. Then you went to Keith and Dan at 11, Craig Killiborn at 2.30. You had all these amazing personalities who had kind of big presence attached to the Sports Center franchise. And as a result, uh, in terms of what was going on out in the field and the actual events, which, by the way, let's, let's point out that those events get many more eyeballs, even in Sports Center's heyday, than, than the you know, shows themselves. So I think that, you know, Tarico had a pretty impressive record of, you know, coming through and delivering and, uh, and doing a good job in a variety of sports. Uh, same with Chris Fowler. Um, I don't think, you know, uh, uh, to your point, I think that if you look back in the 90s, um, uh, it's very hard to, to say, you know, who was going to be, you know, one of, you know the top stars um, just because everybody was of a certain age. I mean, Berman was kind of an outlier in the sense that he had much more of a following and a lot of the rules that uh, were attendant to other people didn't necessarily uh, follow with Berman. I think he was probably um, the only person that they were comfortable with in terms of having his personality and his uh, identity be bigger than the brand itself. Otherwise, as you saw with Overman, Patrick, and others, uh, you know, they like those four initials to be more dominant um, than any individual. It's one of the ways they safeguard themselves from uh, somebody leaving and, uh, you know, taking, you know, part of that brand with them. That's certainly not, you know, as in, well, we'll see with Tariko. I mean, it's, it's not what's going to happen there. Um, you know, it's, it's not like uh, Johnny Carson were to leave NBC or something. I mean, <laughs> nobody was, nobody's bigger than, uh, than those initials. So uh, I have a feeling that, you know, uh, part of it is that Mike was just, he was very, very loyal to the company. He was very, very flexible. He uh, was not high maintenance, you know, people, uh, you know, so it wasn't like he was a diva. He did a lot of work. He tra- He, the guy loves to travel, man. I mean, he. If you look at his schedule, it is just crazy, and you know, some that isn't for a lot of people. So, he was um, definitely a good trooper for them. Yeah, and I, I like what you said. I mean, it's sort of he. He was the. He was a guy who was able to succeed wildly in that company, and I'm not diminishing his talent at all because he's a talented broadcaster, but without becoming bigger than the company and without you know acquiring this sort of larger than life personality that would have made him threatening in that world and i think you know when I, I just think he and chris fowler i mean they hit the sweet spot if you're going to be at espn like there are things that you just do and there are things that you don't do and if that happens you just keep on you know and both of them have you know getting paid a lot of money and getting the prime assignments and you know you just wind up being hugely successful um, and if you and if you have 
if you choose the other route, which is that, you know, you kind of complain and you get into trouble with on-air comments or social media comments and you become a diva amongst the the production team. I mean, one of the one of the kind of gnarly little things that go on. Uh, I mean, whether it's justified or not, people on the road. You know, all those when they were doing the World Cup and when they go on the road with football and whatever. It, it's if you're like if you're low maintenance and you're and it's fun to hang out with you and you treat everybody with respect. It's that that stuff matters. Um, you know, people who have not uh, played that game well uh, have a tendency sometimes to uh, get shot by their own troops. If you know what I mean. Yeah, no, it's the rise of the organization man at ESPN, right? The old class is known for being wildly talented and also, you know, sort of crazy and difficult and occasionally hard to get along with, right? And the new class, I think, when I look at ESPN now, I think of people that are very competent and very smooth and very versatile, right? And that's their value uh, as much as having some, you know, gigantic, larger-than-life presence. Here, well, let me ask you about... Go ahead, sorry. And that's... I'm sorry, I just wanted to... I think that's true for a lot of places. I mean, it's it's probably just not true if you happen to be a Republican running for president this year named Donald (laughs) Trump. But otherwise, um, you know, the, the corporate world is less forgiving, and, you know, as corny as it may sound... Um, teamwork and culture and all those things actually are bigger blips on the radar screen now. Let's talk about one one patch of Mike Tirico's career where it was not so smooth, which is the Monday Night Football booth. Uh, there were, I think, three different versions of this booth. Uh, getting it right, I think you had this. You got a very juicy quote out of Bill Simmons for your book about Tirico not setting up Tony Kornheiser enough when they were together. What took so long to get that right? Uh, I mean, look, it is it is a chemistry problem, and I think that in the case of Tony and Tariko, uh, I happen to agree with Bill. I don't think that Mike did. I think Mike, look, we've been talking about the fact that he's a team player, and I think he tried. I don't think he tried in a in a way that was uh, valuable to Tony. And Tony has Tony had a different approach to. Everybody comes to the booth with their own kind of uh, map, right, of what they feel is going to be successful for them, what's going to be work for them. And I think that Tony came to it with a kind of a very specific idea, which was what's best for Tony. And he's not going to be sitting there for hours and hours and hours wondering if, you know, a middle linebacker goes down in the middle of the second quarter, who are the two best choices to replace him and whether or not, you know, the nickel D is going to be as effective with him in there or not. Tony really could care less about that. Um, and, and to his credit, Tony thought, hey, Mike, you know, that's fine. You take that. You can talk about that. I want to talk about, you know, why Madonna's at the game today and, uh, and certain aspects of the game itself. But I may stay at 30,000 feet, and I might be saying some things that are going to bring people who aren't, you know, huge X's and O's fans into, you know, our orbit. Um, it's going to make it a little bit more accessible. It's going to make it more of a, a night that has – you know, more to do than just the football plays themselves. And I think that that was hard for Mike. He didn't know how to pivot with that. 
Um, and so, you know, I, I, it, it, it's difficult. Like we were saying about first take, when you get a booth, I mean, I don't personally, I don't believe in a three-man booth after the death of Howard Cosell. I, I never understood it. And, uh, you know, I think it's, it's smarter with the two-man booth. So at least they, they were able to make that change. A couple of final big think questions here. So in the last year and change, ESPN loses Tarico, Bayless, Simmons, Olbermann. And you and I might be interested in why those people left and say they left for different reasons. But I honestly don't think viewers and readers really care that much. I think they, they look at it and say, I can't read or watch some of my favorite people anymore. Is there a point at which ESPN executives say, we've reached a critical mass of you know, likable or liked people leaving and this is going to in some way harm the network? Uh, yes. Yes. I mean, the short answer is yes, because one of the things that uh, is clear, not only from Bill Simmons, but from others, is that if you have unique intellectual property, you, you can own that and you can transport it. You are not dependent on a huge infrastructure like ESPN to, you don't need it to deliver it to your audience. You can be entrepreneurial and put together your own ecosystem of like, you know, okay, I'm going to partner with this person on a pod and I'm going to, you know, partner with this person for a a nightly show or a weekly show or whatever. So ESPN has to understand that it's not like they're, you know, they're the place to go and they don't have to worry about it. And I think that there's something else, which is in the context of these struggles with SportsCenter, it's like, so why are people going to watch the network outside of the live events? I mean, Skipper was smart in the sense that he doesn't know whether or not, uh, you know, first take will be working three or four years from now, but he knows that people are going to want to watch the Rose Bowl. They're going to want to watch the college football playoffs. They're going to want to watch Monday Night Football. So he spent a ton of money. He spent a ton of money, and he went out and bought a lot of these things, and he bought, you know, long-term deals. And uh, whether or not he paid too much for it, that's a side issue. But he understood that. So that's their foundation. But in terms of all the other stuff for when those live events aren't on, what, how are you going to get people to tune in? And the, and the real the real way to ensure it is to have these distinctive personalities and who are delivering something that nobody else can deliver. So once Skip Bayless goes over to Fox, you know, Fox has that persona and, you know, maybe that's not worth five and a half million dollars to some people and, you know, but it is to Fox. And so at least they, the thing that I will say about Jamie Horowitz right now at Fox is he's got a strategy. And it's very clear, and he's executing it. Whether he's overpaying for it or not, we can't kind of figure it out now. We have to wait. But I understand the strategy. Mr. Rico Universe, what will they miss most, do you think? Well, I mean, look, you know, if you're sitting in front of, like, a lot of empty beer cans and empty pizza boxes from the night before, and you're trying to, like, just wake up and you click on first take, you know, you're in college and you click on first take and whoever Bayless's replacement will be is there. And if, if that person is not, you know, hitting home runs, like, you know, that viewer may have thought Bayless did, then they're going to miss that right away. It's much, it's, uh, Bayless is going to be very much more apparent in a way than 
to Rico on Monday Night Football only because Monday Night Football has this tsunami of the game itself washing over, you know, I mean, it's not like Mike's even on camera that much. So you're going to hear a voice, and it's like it may be, you know, McDonough or whoever it is, but it's like, oh, wait, is that – hold on a second. You know, and so, you know, not to take anything away from Tariko, but that's going to be an adjustment. But it's not going to be as drastic as people who are Bayless fans who, you know, are not going to see him. Jim Miller, when the next ESPN personality leaves, will send up a bat signal and hope you answer the call. <laughs> My pleasure. Thanks for coming on.